Welcome back to Walking Water. This is Ayana Ngosani. And this is Dambuzo Mushambi. And today, what are we talking about? Books, 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 books. <laughs> we are both reading towards degrees. Me, my master's. And me towards my uh, my PhD. So we've been Yeah, so we've got lots of books that we read, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> there's like six books in front of me. Yes. Yeah, I think we thought of just like, yeah, just sharing what is influencing our own thoughts. And yeah, what we're currently spending our time thinking about and reading about. Right. Most of my books are all written by females. Black females. This is very interesting. Yeah. Black female, black female. Black male. Black dude. Yeah. This American female. American female, yeah. But yeah, I mean, she's a person of color. So, tell me something though. Maybe just for the sake of the... Just people to kind of catch up with us. What are you studying, Ayanda? And mm. is why are you studying that? Sure. So I'm doing my master's in history, mm-hmm. looking at intergenerational trauma. So part of what I'm really curious about is how the trauma of first generation is passed down to the born freeze. So I'm looking at three families across three generations, all located within Nkukuletu, which is where I grew up. Okay. So the grandparent would have been the first kind of cohort of people to move to Kukuleto. Okay. And so tracing the experience under apartheid, the experience of being black and woman under apartheid, raising family, um, self-preservation, the ways in which the state um, kind of invades home mm-hmm. through this violence, and how can those traumatic experiences are shared, are spoken about through our history, and how those then influence the formation of young people. Sure. So I'm a born free, I'm born 93, and so I'm always just like, quite curious around like how intergenerational trauma that is passed down affects how I self-actualize as a black person. Sure. Yes, that's my thing. So, I mean, I read lots of kind of like autobiographical oral history stuff of women in Kukuleto or different other experiences. So, I mean, trauma as a whole comes from like post-Holocaust studies. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to create like a lexicon for trauma in Ishkasa. That's my thing. What are you sure. doing with your life? Yeah, how's that? Uh, with my life, I have been for the last, what? 10 or more years um, on the path of theology. So I'm kind of like a wannabe theologian. <laughs> you could call me that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, so, so my PhD topic is, it relates to, so it touches on autobiography, but it touches specifically on uh, Chief Albert Dutuli's autobiography and trying to break down his understanding of or his, his political theology, basically. So how he understands the organization of structural power within society Mm. from the perspective of how god interacts with human beings so was he christian so yeah he was he was Mm. so which is he's got he's a very very fascinating guy in terms of how his story is told and how it is narrated Mm. because depending on who you ask like within a lot of the christian circles that i've been in when you talk about Christians in public office or whatever, mm. you always hear about William Wilberforce oh, yeah. or Abraham Kuyper from the Netherlands or whatever. But in Kosulutuli, you don't really get to hear about him because, sure. I mean, probably because of the whole thing of he was heavily embedded in politics. He was the president mm. of the ANC mm. from 52 until 67 when he died. Mm. And so I think for some people, maybe they think, oh, well, because he's that embedded in politics, maybe he's not. He can't be Christian. He can't be, he can't be a Christian type of a thing. So depending on what, which, which spaces you, you, you kind of enter into, for mm. some people, they pay lip service to his being a Christian type okay. of a thing. So even some of the speeches that uh, Uta Bumbeki gave when he was president and when they were commemorating the museum in KZN, mm. they, they pay lip service to you know, the fact that he, you know Christian principles and so on and so forth. And okay. there's complicated reasons behind that, some of which are tied in with when the ANC was transitioning from non-violent protest to when mm. they started up Mkondo Yeah, And he was the president during that period. Mm. And so there's a, there's a contest amongst scholars there in terms of like, was he really behind this? Or was ah. there a usurpation of power by Mandela? And he pushed this particular agenda and Lutuli was under ban. 
and he okay. these other guys ran with the agenda and kind of had to persuade him to come on board but he never quite did so there's a lot of controversy around that and so what does as, he say so the problem the problem is when you read his autobiography it seems like he he understands why people would turn to violence but his autobiography was published in like 1962 mm. and i think was formed prior to that mm. so in the autobiography when you read it you can read and pick up that he's he sees why people would want to turn to violence but mm. he says but that that would be a really bad idea why because the state we're going against is so well equipped yeah. that they would crush us and that they would kill us. And he, he just doesn't push in that particular direction. Sure. So he sees the reason why people would turn to violence, but he doesn't think that it's a good idea to go in that particular direction. Mm. But it, it's, it's always, again, that's the thing, I guess, with history, when you contest different narratives, because when mm. you go from his perspective, it doesn't seem that way. But then when you read later on, like if you read Mandela's autobiography, Long, Road to, Long, Long Walk to Freedom, how they start to construct the narrative is like no he was fully on board with it mm. but yet we know that they had to have multiple meetings with him to try to, try yeah. to persuade him yeah. so there's also elements of like how some of these guys stories get co-opted into national narratives and nationalistic narratives to push certain ideas yeah just a unified picture of this is who we are this is what we're mm. trying to do so yeah there's a lot of controversy around around Lutuli and his story and where it fits in with the story that the ANC is trying to also portray about itself and mm -hmm. its history mm -hmm. and its unity and fractures and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I'm kind of wading a little bit into some of that. And yeah, what so do you think he meant? I think, from what I've read so far, everything about him, if he agreed to go with form, forming Kondowesi's way, I think it would have been like at a push. And not his first impulse. Not his first impulse at a push, but also maybe for very like limited. Because I think at the beginning also they were saying let's do limited operations mm. against infrastructure, not against people. People, okay. Um, so if I think at a push, if anything, probably that. Beyond that, I think it's yeah. I think there were other forces at play because also other yeah. thing about him as well is that because he was banned a lot of the times that he was sequestered in Grafell where he was. He wasn't really connected to the flow of how things worked, oh, and so given also some of his personality okay. and also some of his his views was that as the president of an organization, and he said this of the people that came before him as well, mm. is that I'm here to serve. Mm. I'm not here to push my own opinions. I'm here to serve. So if the organization is pushing in a particular direction, he would have said, "I yes. need to heed yeah. what the organization is saying." Even if it's not my first impulse. Even if it's not his own particular impulse. So he also would have been, so I would also wrestle to see him pushing against that and saying, mm. oh, I totally oppose this thing. Mm. Just given what, how he views leadership, how he views himself as a leader. In this, so it would, have okay. been, it would have been very, very hard pressed, I think, to go out and to say, this direction is rubbish. So between yeah. him being banned out of the way, his personality, and the fact that later on also he got sick. So he wasn't as involved anymore. That I think kind of like maybe pushed him to the side. But anyway, but his is a fascinating story. And just to see how this one man was trying to integrate and think about his faith, thinking about his politics in this space mm. of apartheid. And at that time, especially, you know, defiance campaign, he took over around about that time, the defiance campaign. Sure. You know, Shabu massacre. Even though, like the PAC had a huge role to play with that, they were actually the spearheads of that. Yeah. So he was at the at at the head of this organization during this pivotal time, mm. where they went through so many different changes. When the government was becoming so so much more repressive. So I'm fascinated to be reading, not only his autobiography but other people around that time too. So for writing we, about that time. For writing about that time and how they're also negotiating this thing. So other people who decided to walk away from Jesus because mm. it's like this, how did um, Ezekiel Mpahlele or Eskia Mpahlele is in his autobiography down second Avenue where he's like this churchianity doesn't make sense. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to continue down this path. I mean, when have, when, when else have we heard that? You know what I mean? So, so it's fascinating reading all these different lives and how these guys are men and women how they were trying to make sense. Some of them are people of faith, some of them are not. Mm. Um, some of them are radically politically active. Some of them, like Brokmo Desane says, I'm not, 
but by virtue of being black, I'm essentially politicized. Yeah. Even though I don't want to be a card carrying anything, yeah. I don't want any of yeah. that. But it's decided for me. It's decided because... for me by the fact that I'm black and the fact that hmm. blackness is being politicized within South Africa, hmm. and the virtue of being a black person, I am a problem. That's I think one of the phrases that Du Bois also Du Bois also uses too. Yeah. Like you are a problem by the virtue of the fact that you are black. So you're. And problematic you're a threat to the state and you're a threat so you're forced into politics not not even by your participation but but simply by the color of your skin so this is like so it's fascinating reading all these different things and trying to make sense of it and then trying to make sense of that within our space too so that's that's part of the work that i'm doing right now so i think what's interesting that like none of the questions that we are asking today are new yeah right that's that they were <laughs> exactly black exactly. christians 30, 40 years ago, yeah. who was wrestling with the same kind yeah. of issues around how does my faith propel me towards being political? Right. And also people say, because of my faith, I am apolitical. Right. And both those people existing in the same space, yeah. in the same realm, yeah. and possibly in the same church, right? Being like, and I think that's, I think that's why like my obsession with history is that, is that like, we can access other people's archives that right. we are walking and I think that's been the thing for me being like I'm not a pioneer in any way but I'm walking into a moving story yeah. of other people who've come to ask these questions right. and I think oh yeah. man yeah I think that's why history for me is such a such an exciting field is right. just just because of that, mm. because of that. yeah um, you don't you don't come into this it's, there's no there are footprints in the sand already. Already. You know, yeah. Other people have walked in the sand before us. Type yeah. Of the thing. So you're not. These are, these are not fresh questions. Yeah. Uh, right. They're not fresh questions at all. I'm just remembering you know? now. I think it was like the first wave of student movements, and someone was like, "Yeah, like 30 years ago, no one would ever be speaking about queer politics." And someone was like, "I was part of the ANC since, since, and we sure. were asking these questions." Uh, and I think it's quite like a humbling thing to. I think it's quite a like. I think a zealous youthful excitement to want right. to be a pioneer right. and i think we are in many ways but i also think it's such a, such a i think it's a slap in the face of people who vote before us yeah. who are like actually we paved the way to enable you to ask these questions and in fact now to have asked them before yeah anyway. and, and pay attention to some of our answers they might yes. they might help you <laughs> They might help you in trying to figure out your own time and your own questions too. And I think so, that's how we yeah. are like <laughs> weird side notes. I was in, I was doing my field work this past week and I was asking this one lady, I'm like, Mama, like why don't you guys talk about history? Like why don't you tell us like the things that you guys learned? She says, Galognina, you don't wanna hear these things. Hmm. She's like, None of my grandchildren have ever sat and say, Mama, tell me tell your story. Me your story. Right. And she's like and I think she's like, as a parent, we look at you guys and we just say I let them figure it out because they don't seem to want to know hey, from us. but she's like if we would come back to them and say mama when this happened what did you guys do mm. we might be quickened in in our processing yeah. but I, I mean i i hear that but i'm also like i think we need to have our own journey but i wonder if the weight would be less if we just like checked in with those who come before yeah. us makes which sense. is why yeah. makes sense sure yeah. i'm currently reading cindy magana's book my children's children. She is dope. Oh my gosh, yeah. Guys, so Osinde Magana is born and raised in Kukuleto. She's a novelist. Like most of her books are very autobiographical. I love her so much. Um, and she's still alive, which is such a gift for us. And so this book she's writing, it's almost like a letter to her, her grandchildren mm. and her great-grandchildren. And detailing kind of her life, Kukuleto, um, how she lives, what she wrestles with, and how she's processing being black and woman Gapa in hmm. I think in the 70s 80s anyway yes so this book is just yeah really lovely so one of my favorite things now is reading about it in this book was her I think writing about how she wasn't aware that she was poor because mm. she's like so she, she speaks about how like when she was growing up that just like all the kids Elokshin would be like these like patchy kids with snorts riding down they they nose um, playing and having fun and she she details this one story which is like every Christmas these like white Christian women would come to Igukuleto and be giving them toys and food and so forth and just like we never questioned the relationship between the white women who were coming in on Christmas day and their positionality right mm. so she's like 
we were never aware that like we were the we it, this relationship could only work if we were the beneficiaries of their unloving okay so here she's like she says how are we to know that many of these kind ladies were the wives and daughters of the men who paid our father's peanuts fed their dogs t-bone steaks and ensured our poverty by voting in a government whose avowed task was making certain we would stay servants surf-like and docile we were children that these ladies were from another world that they were giving us their time showing us their christian caring alleviating our poverty if for one day in a year was completely lost on us we didn't know we were poor and i think for me like this was such an important thing because part of like i've just been playing around with the theory that like i'm not sure that all black people under apartheid knew apartheid was a thing until it ended right. i think they might have just assumed that that just was the status quo that like white people are the ones who are in government white people are our bosses and we work for them white people come into the township to, to save us and to like alleviate our poverty for this mm. one day and i think the way that she writes the stories as though like she only becomes aware of her blackness and her poorness in the aftermath mm. or when she has her own children sure. And so here when she says, Mana, we didn't even know we were poor, Tina. We were just children receiving toys when our mothers would go to work and come back with like stale bread and like leftover foods. Like we were just happy recipients of this love and this yeah. kindness. And so I was at home this weekend and my aunt is a domestic worker. She comes home with like food and it's like this thing. And like my cousins were so excited, like, Mama, what did you bring us from work? And it's like. I think we are aware that like something is wrong in our economy, something's wrong in the story of being black in the city. But the commonness of how we are beneficiaries of white people's help becomes the norm mm. that we don't even see that we we are beneficiaries. That sure. this is merely how we interact. And I think for her when she says we were just kids who were playing yeah. and waiting for mama at the station, coming back with this food. We didn't even know we were poor, dude. Yeah. Like, we were just doing life. We were just, just children. Just yeah. And I think like now writing and like doing oral history has been such an awakening for me to like question my own assumptions about how black people saw themselves, especially those who weren't politically active, like women mm. who were just like domestic workers. Yeah. So they wanted the streets rioting. They were just women who were living in the city, thankful for the houses that were getting from the government, grateful that there was no load shedding. For them, that was just how life was. And I wonder if when apartheid ends in 1990 and we have the TRC, then Abandu see, guys, you were actually living under oppression, like, like something was, was wrong. Sure. And I think just like the innocence in how she writes, like the first two parts of this book is like her being like a young child who was like 13, 14, just being black. Mm. And I mean, in her, in her other book, uh, Forced to Grow, she speaks more rigorously about being poor and like having to work having to fight for jobs and like having to be a teacher and i think then she realizes what is happening but in this part of the book it's just this thing of like you're just doing what you're doing right? we're doing what we're doing and i think yeah like i'm just really enjoying reading this book as her reflection of her her own life yeah. and i think it's really just influencing how i think about writing my own thesis that like i want to be both a participant of my writing but I'm also co-writing stories with other people. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm just really enjoying the show. Sure. It raises very interesting questions, like you're saying about whether people knew that, how much did people know at the time? Because obviously there are people who are a lot more engaged and more awake to what's happening around them. Mm -hmm. And then there are others who are like, well, this is just the norm. Yeah. It's just the way it is. It's the way it's supposed to be. Well, the, it feels like this is the way things are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So you don't question it. You don't probe it or anything of the sort. And it, it reminded me a little bit of Down Second Avenue, where he's, of course, this is him writing in the late 50s, about 58 now, mm. but is reflecting back on the formation of the Herzog government in the 30s, the 1930s. Yeah. And even there, too, it's like, like he's now aware of these things later on, but at the, that particular point in time, these macro events are happening that shape your day-to-day -day life, yeah. but you just don't ever quite see the connection between no. these different things. Yeah. So one of the things that he writes on, the, on about the formation of that government that it was a it was a mystery to me this whole fusion so the the two groups of africana nationalists so the one which was moderate with english speakers yeah. and the other one which was more rigorous i suppose mm -hmm. forming into the united party so saying it was it was a mystery to me this whole fusion mm. but i didn't spend sleepless nights over the matter mm. i wonder how many people in maraba stud 
understood the forces at work. Mm. Cold comfort for the mice that jumped over my head at night or the bugs that feasted on me. Mm. So it's like... My concerns like, weren't... Like my concerns were not about the formation of this weird government yeah. that got later on toppled over by the National Party or yeah. whatever. My concern was, I'm being eaten by bugs mm-hmm. and I'm cold. But mm. you don't you quite always see the connection between the one and the other. Like, why mm. are you poor? So it's, it's fascinating to me, just some some of that. Like, yeah, people weren't always aware of what was going on around them. I mean, Mm-mm. you knew you were poor, especially with that connection of going to the European areas and seeing how people lived. You knew you were poor. Yeah. But to make those connections, I think it wasn't always necessarily obvious, which uh-uh. is mind-boggling in its own yeah. way. How could you not yeah. see the whatnots? But again, that's I mean, look benefit at, of hindsight on our part. But yeah, she says we did not question why it was that the be- that the beneficent were inevitably white, the beneficiaries inevitably black. Right. We had no way of knowing about the broader issues that had given birth to the organization that was like doing these feeding schemes. Mm. Let alone understand its missions. To say nothing of the inadequacy and limitedness of its undertaking. How are we to know? Yeah, so she continues. And I think sure. it's a thing of like, I think as a ch- when I think of my sister as a child, when she comes to my house, she's like, I'm experiencing all this life, this lavishness, the Wi-Fi, the Netflix, all these things. And I think now my sister's 10 and I, I, can, I can see her grappling between my mom's world, the Kailija, and my and world here. here. I mean, I think one day she had gone to school and they all had like this assignment. And she comes up and says, Mama, I was the only one who didn't have their homework printed. Hmm. And so in that moment, I could see that she's grappling with like, why are other kids able to print their homework on white paper and I have to write mine out? And I think there's like these moments where I think that she is interacting with otherness. Hmm. But I think in this moment where Cindy was writing that like, there wasn't even, there wasn't even the the space to even think about those things. It just, it just was. It just was. was. I was worried about the rats and the the fleas that were like, they were biting me, but not about, yeah, the geopolitical what-whats. Right, which is shaping my reality. Mm-hmm. Like that's, out, that's kind of like out of the way. So. Mm. But anyway, yeah, so, ish, books, eh? <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's one of the things that I, I always, I've always loved about books, but in particular, I guess, about the books I'm reading and the work that I'm doing, reading other people's lives, yeah. is just really getting a window into something that I, generally speaking, would otherwise not be able to access. Yeah. Just those thought processes and trying to understand... Mm. who they are and how they wrestle what they wrestle with so yeah love, yeah. love it but yeah what else what else are you what else are you reading what else <laughs> are you engaging with what else is kind of like top of your mind right now that you're the learning, thing, learning from the thing that i'm really struggling with y'all is france for nuns black skin white moss this is such this is a book for me that was like highly read during kind of the feast must fall rose must fall era and i just did not interact with it i was just like our friends for none is like this beacon of decoloniality and mm. I just can't stand him. And for me, he meant like, he was like a representation of like black masculinity, uh, violence, like all these things. I was just like, I can't, I can't, I don't have the range for you right now. But now reading it as a 26 year old is tough. So part of, so part of my research is going into Kukuleto and interviewing families and having to ask Abandu to open up their minds and their hearts and their memories and their homes to me. Mm. And I've been so, like, really just confronted with... When I first thought about doing my thesis, I was like, oh, I'm an insider, I grab a kukuletu, I speak as Kausa, I'm a child of these streets. Right. And so I was like, definitely it's going to be like this easy sailing thing. Everyone's going to, like, want to open their homes to me and, like, pour come, out. Come, come right in. Isa, 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 isa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's been so stressful. Sure. And I think part of what this book has been exposing to me is just how my education at UCT has made me an other. Where in my family, I am the example of what success is and like the epitome of like black girl magic. But this means that I'm inaccessible to my family in many ways. That I'm the person who, I'm the cousin who doesn't go home at Christmas. The cousin who doesn't go to, to events because I have a school thing or whatever. And so I, be, I, become, I have become the cousin who they say, oh, Ayanda, oh, Fundile. Ayanda has got education, but it's this unicorn that is like up in a mountain. And I think part of what been, I've been really struggling with coming to do my research now is that like I'm leaving the mountain to come to the mm, bottom to be with people. for the purposes of the mountain. Yeah, I think I've read this piece um, in a different episode of just struggling to, to deal with things, right? Mm. So I'm in here, Fanon writes, in every country in the world, there are social climbers, 
those who think they've arrived. And opposite them were those who keep the notion of their origins. The Italian, returning from the metropole, speaks in Creole if he wants to signify that nothing has changed. It can be sensed on the docks where friends and relatives are waiting for him. Waiting for him not only in the literal sense, but in the sense of waiting to catch him out. They need only one minute to make the diagnosis. If he says, I am so happy to be back among you. Good Lord, it's so hot in this place. I'm not sure I can put up with it for long. They have been forewarned. It is a European who has come back home. And I think for me, like, when I got to UCT, and I think because, like, I was living in Rares and, like, everyone was just speaking different languages, I had to affirm my cousin as, like, to go to Mkosa. And I grabbed my my own domestic worker. Like, I had to, like, really affirm my cussedness and my poorness and all these things. Carve out a space for yourself. And, and, mm. and also to herself that, like, I'm not going to be changed by this thing. Mm. Ten years on, I carve out my cussedness in many ways and, like, being very adamant about wanting to interview my participants in his class, mm. wanting to interview the family that I'm doing in his class to assert that I haven't changed. But every time I'm home, I realize that I'm a visitor in the space. And that I might not come home and say, oh, this gets so hot, or, like, why are there so many flies or whatever. Mm. But there's something about how I interact with my family and how I interact with the families that I'm interviewing that shows how much I have changed and how outside I am. Sure. And there's another part where Fernand speaks about how the Italian who has gone to France or has gone to university is welcome nowhere. It's like I'm neither home at UCT, neither am I home at home because of this this thing that has happened to me. And I've been like really fighting for who I am and what my personality is. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, yeah, I think it's been really good for me to read this book as a personal kind of journey around what my blackness means today yeah. and how I position myself as I do research at home. But it's also been like a really harsh reality as to say that like something has shifted and I can fight for my origin and I always do in the work that I do. But I'm a child who's born in the post-colonial moment. And so I can't reimagine a Wakanda Ayanda who hasn't been colonized, who hasn't been processed in the world. I am all of these things. Yeah. And I'm like trying to slowly get to the realization that actually something has shifted. And I can decide how that forces me to interact with my world, mm-hmm. but I can't deny that something has happened. Yeah. And, yeah. You, can't, really... you, can't, you can't wind the clock back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and pretend like, ish, it's all... <laughs> that it's all like, it's all gravy. And that, ish, yeah. And that, that's... I started, I started reading this book, and I, was, I know we're supposed to read it together. But I've always found it very fascinating, I guess, just this book, how it does, like, detail and talk about that process of being in one sense colonized mm. and that process of losing mm. pieces of yourself and trying to make sense then of this new being that then emerges mm. and that that I think I think maybe that might be one of the challenges that young South Africans are having with the upward social mobility that's yeah. now afforded access yeah. to spaces that maybe their parents didn't have access to I think that's one of the challenges that's now there it's like how then do you engage those particular spaces how do you stay who you are can you stay who you are yeah. likely likely not because that's always the thing whenever you come in contact with with an other yeah you leave that exchange changed mm-hmm. one way or the other whether you come back come away from that further confirmed in your Blackness sense of self yeah, yeah, or yeah. whether you take what you have already and you kind of like meld it into this new amalgam yeah it comes out of there but you never left unchanged no I that's that's the reality and i think now. that's the painful yeah. reality right yeah. that like I think for me, part of what I've been fighting for is like a one type of Ayanda where I am this one thing and, and the assumption that like nothing has happened to me. I mean, now when I think of like that part of studying further, doing my master's, I want to do a PhD, is that like I'm going to form part of the black middle class. Right. And that black middle class has to exist, but there has to be someone who's lower class, right? And so like part of what I'm signing up to is this rat race of money mm. But that is built on exploitation. And so, like, how do I tap out of this exploitative capitalist economy? Yet still being like, I worked really hard to get, to here. get here. Like, my mom fought for me to be able to be the su- successful child who lives in the suburbs. But part of my suburban life 
is itself exclusionary and very anti-black and very anti-poor, but it's a system that I'm fighting towards and that I'm fighting to be part of and to be accepted. And, oh man, anyway, yeah. those are my kind of, I think the two reads that I'm just like sitting with. What are you reading? There's lots of books here. There's lots of books. Well, like what, from what you were saying, there's something that struck a resonance with me with something that I also read in Sisong M. Simang's book. Uh, in her memoir, as I mean, as someone who's a South African who grew up in exile, though, mm. in Zambia, in Kenya, Canada, she went to school in the States and then she came back to South Africa. And her also trying to negotiate who she is in this new South Africa as well, mm. especially as someone who, because she was her family was connected to the struggle, I think her, her uncles, uh, Selby, I don't remember what the uncle's name is. Um, they were some of the founding members of the ANC. Sure. So she's had like, like long struggle credentials and so, so of course that affords certain privileges and access. Yeah. But she writes an interesting line when she talks about moving into the suburbs mm. and becoming this middle class black person and the ecosystem that you buy into, which is picking up on what you're saying. And she writes a very interesting, very interesting line she puts in there about what the house that she moved into in Congo Road, what that house represents, mm. what it means, and that wrestle and that struggle, which picks up on what you were saying. Yeah. She mentions there in one of the pages, the house makes me complicit. Yeah. She puts it. Suddenly I hold shares in South Africa, Inc. And my participation in a firm whose business I loathe makes me anxious. Mm. It takes me a long time to figure out that this is the core of all the troubles we experience in the house on Congo Road. It places us firmly in the heart of whiteness. Sure. So she picks up on, like, again, like what, what, what it means mm. for you now to own this property and to now have to have somebody who comes in to clean your space for you. And yeah. now you have to, there's parts of all of this that you start to embrace, mm. not even on purpose, Mm-mm. but simply because you've moved into this thing that has been constructed a particular way. So those anxieties that you're talking about is something that mm. she shares and mm. she she wrestled with trying to figure out her place in the midst of that. She didn't come up with any answers per yeah. se. And I think there are but any answers. I don't know if there are any answers at all because if you choose to step away, but then that's a job that you could be providing that you're not, so how do you answer that particular thing? So it's, but it's, yeah, it's just fascinating yeah. that, and that's why I think, yeah, that's the value I think of reading and hearing other people's perspectives. Cause then it also like, there's a kindred spirit, someone who's kind of like fighting with the same anxieties that you're wrestling with right now yeah. and the same fights and thoughts and anxieties that you're, you're kind of encountering now is something that she's also yeah. encountered too. And she's, yeah, tried to find her own answers to some of those questions, but that's real though. That's real. But I mean, this I'm remembering the, the story I told you a while back where, so my lover is looking to buy a house. And so he's like, look, we're not married, but the house that I would buy would be the house that we'd move in together and we'd get married. So we're driving around the southern suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so we drive past Campground Road. I'm like, oh, baby, like this community like feels like crack, nice. Like, nice. I, can nice. See, I can see the kids like learning how to ride the bicycle, whatever. <laughs> And then we drive into like a different part of like the sunset. So I'm like, mm, and yes, my baby, like, I just don't feel, I don't know, man. I just feel, I feel a bit off. <laughs> Something doesn't feel right. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Something doesn't feel right. I'm like, I'm oh, baby, like this place just, mm-mm. I just, I feel a bit off about it. And so we drive back into like, I think Newlands and I'm like, yeah. This is good. <laughs> and like he, yes, he calls me out. He's like, Oh my God, Ayanda! Do you see? <laughs> well, do you see what's happening right now? Do you right see now? what's happening? And like, guys, I was so embarrassed because I'm like, part of what I was saying was that like, man, there's not enough white people here. And the thing that I'm fearing, right? Like when I said that, when I, I'm scared of like violence or break-ins, it's that like I remember saying to him like, mm. I'm scared of blackness, right? Mm. And 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 sure. I think it's it's this weird thing where I was like, sure, man, like I believe that I'm I'm deserving of, of a safe home and a safe place to raise my kids when I have them yeah. but that safety looks like whiteness and that safety and non-safety is a black community mm. or that has two it's it's the same thing with like schooling too, too many black people uh, it, it triggers a certain association you see and like when I was looking for a school for my sister it's like hmm part of what I was looking for what is the 
the black racial demographics in the school because I'm subconsciously that means something else. Mm. And it's been like such a painful thing to be like, huh, I am complicit. And in fact, like I'm so in love with the world that whiteness offers me. And like, what do I do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, I, mean, I think I, I really resonate with that. And I think even now, so like really thinking about like, what does it look like to really just like fight for security and safety, but not criminalizing blackness as mm. a black person? Because then that's self-hating, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah, that's... But it's, but it's one of those things where, gosh, it's so like, it's such a conundrum as to how do you work yourself out of it like you totally understand the 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 drive and the need to be in particular neighborhoods yeah which are the way they are there's a history to them there's a history to the spatial locations and whatever else that's sorted out that's there so like how yeah how how do you access that (laughs) while at the same time how do you access the service provision the Mm looking streets yeah. the, the municipality that takes seriously complaints about potholes like how do you access that because again we're all of us gravitating towards mm. safety and comfort and security and there's a conversation to be had about that as well at some Definitely. point but we gravitate towards towards those things but then yeah what gets sacrificed in the in the meantime and, and what are we saying about ourselves, right? What do we say about ourselves and what do we and what are the attitudes that we pick up when we move into those spaces too? Yeah. Which again it's something we spoke about about before. But yeah, complicity, right? That's that's a that's a good word that uh Sisonke used there. Feeling complicit by entering some of these spaces and yeah, ish, that's a tough one. Yo, but that's yeah, that what complicity is really difficult because I think it's like I, I'm I'm grateful that she's brave to call it that. Yeah. And I think it gives me freedom to be like actually I can name it in many different ways, but part of it is that I, I then become complicit. I become part of the people who are in the neighborhood WhatsApp group who says, guys, there's someone who's walking around. Can... Who's suspicious. Anyway. suspicious. Like, what does that mean? Anyway. <laughs> what qualifies as somebody anyway. as suspicious? What is suspiciousness yes. composed of? Yes. Right. And... Yeah. Help us, Jesus. Yo, we need it. Anyway, um, what, <laughs> what else... But also, I know there's, yeah, I know my, most of my stuff that I'm reading for myself, yeah. it's autobiographical. So I'm reading Joe Slovo, I'm reading Dihang Moseneke, reading Kamara Laye, Blog Modisane, I've mentioned a whole bunch of other people. But there's also other stuff that I'm also reading on the political theology side of things too, which I'm not sure how interesting that would be for people to, to, to hear that side of things. But Dive in. But that's also, I well, I mean, it's, it's, it's just been fascinating just reading some of that stuff too, because it's, for myself, I found it very challenging just to enter into different ways in which people think about the relationship between the political and the theological. Yeah. And I know that the spaces that I came out from in terms of my early days as a Christian would have been like, that's a misnomer, talking about political theology because the two don't have anything to do with each other. You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to the Lord what is the Lord's. Yeah. And the two things don't meet. They don't marry in any way. And you're just trying to politicize the church. My religion and my theology is not of this world. So whenever you try to bring in anything that touches on the political, ah, no, you're trying to cannibalize the faith in one mm. sense. So it has been fascinating to me reading other people, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, is one of them, uh, Dorothy Sowell. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name properly. I need to probably look that up. And how they're also pushing against this view of theology that thinks that it's apolitical. Mm. Because, I mean, if you stop and think about it, like our South African situation here, there's something deeply theological that's happening when we organize our politics around the notion that some people are not as human as others. Yeah. There's a theological thing that's happening there. And when you buy into that, whether you know it or not, you're making a political statement. Yeah. And your theology is either propping up and supporting this organization of structural power, which is abusive, or it's challenging that. Mm-hmm. And it happens in so many other spaces too. Like when we are entering into conversations about, um, about abortion or about mm-hmm. same-sex marriage or whatever, we, we have certain ways of thinking about who God is and how God relates to other people mm-hmm. that translates to how we think society ought to be organized. And we enter into those conversations, but 
we typically enter into some of those conversations and in specific ways but somehow people also want to then divorce themselves and say, no, but we're not political. Like, no, actually, mm, your, your theology bleeds from inside the four walls of the church to outside, to mm. how we do life, to how you then vote mm. and all of that. So that's just been really fascinating to me, just seeing this, this broader vision of really, I think, I think it's about accountability. Okay. I think it's about asking questions and about accountability to say, you need to trace where your theology leads. Mm. You need to really think about that and to really think about what are you propping up? What are you, by your affirmations within that realm of theology, by your understanding of who God is, that has consequences in the public arena. Mm. And when a public figure makes a statement about the humanity, about the world, about all that stuff, so much of it is also laced with theological like language, yeah. when you talk about rightness, mm. when you talk about uh, even concepts of justice. justice. I mean, those are deeply theological concepts as well that people appeal to, even though they might strip it of its theological content. So now, as a Christian, I have to choose, like, how am I going to relate to that? Mm. Whether I will deconstruct it and try to make sense of it, or whether I will step away from that arena and like be like, ah, oh, this is not my, my thing to get involved in. Mm. But one way or the other, I'm either going to be betraying my theological commitments or I'm not going to be following them through to the logical conclusion. So either way though, I have to, I'm implicated one way or the other. Yeah. The challenge for me is to become a more responsible person in terms of the theology I hold and the consequences of that theology and whether I actually follow through on that. So that, that's, that's, that's really been fascinating to me. Like, yeah, there's no, there's no theology which is apolitical. Yeah. Which is, I know for some people that's like, yeah, stop it. Mm. <laughs> You're trying to, again, going back to the thing of you politicizing the church. You're like, no, actually, stop and think really carefully about the different things that our theologies affirm and what that means about how we live life in the public space. For yeah. instance? Well, so I gave an example like the whole apartheid thing. Mm. I gave an example with regards to that. Another example is would be with regards to, but like some, some, some of these are ancient, some of these are current. Mm. I'm not quite sure which ones to jump into. But another simple example would be, for example, if you have a perspective or a view of women that means they're lesser mm. in one way or the other, that they need the superintendence and the overseeing of men, mm. Part of where that sort of like led and why it was such a hard thing to overturn is, well, why, why then can you vote? You shouldn't vote mm. because you don't, you don't have a mind to exercise on, type your of a thing on your own. You need to have either your father or your husband or your brother who's looking out for you and they'll exercise the right on your behalf mm. type of a thing. Mm. That comes from a certain, from an anthropology, from a certain view of what, what humanity is yeah. and the distinction between men and women and the, the value that we attach to one or the other. And that, of course has its you know impact within a within a political sphere mm. as that changes as we come to a place of understanding actually no being created in god's image male and female he created them that means that we are both of us equally we're equally made in god's image we both reflect this image of god and we're mm. both you know adam and Eve were co-ruling this thing together so then how can i then take away the right that you have to vote mm. so i mean that that's just another simple example but a very practical one hmm. about how that theology the way we articulate it, the way we think about who we are and how we are in the world yeah. it doesn't just stop with us it, yeah. it bleeds into how we shape the spaces around us how our families run but also beyond that then how our cities are run and how our, our nations our nations are run so even as you can take this and start to think about this also with regards to how we relate to and treat the homeless yeah as well if we really, really, truly believe that all people have value, then, then what's up with our yeah? What's up with our homeless shelters? Mm. The lack of them and also the state of them. The state of them. How? And the the healthcare provided to mm. them and that thing of loving neighbors as ourselves. Are we betraying something of our theology by not actively trying to engage some of those things? Are we are we stopping short? of the fullness of the implication of what that actually means mm. by not engaging some of some of those fights. And I think in some ways, yes, we are. We're copping out. Mm. We're copping out of where this thing leads us. Mm. Yeah, so that's Charming. just a couple of examples, I think, of just how, yeah, those those things interact one with the other. And mm. to really take 
to heart just that just that lesson of there is no such thing as an apolitical theology or a right. theology that doesn't have anything to do with this world hmm. because if it's God's world and God is trying to shape it in a particular way then everything. God has a yeah everything everything concerns hmm. you know how God is trying to shape this world and kind of run away from that yeah so that's so important though like I'm just thinking yeah. now that I remember there was a story I think last year or the year before where there was a church that took the government to court mm. because they wanted the right to hit their kids. Mm. So apparently the church had a parenting manual and part of it was quoting Proverbs that says Spare the rod, spoil the child. Oh, uh, right. right. Yeah. And and the government was saying that like you can't do corporate punishment, you can't be hitting your kids. And I found it so interesting that like they the churches in the C B D it was willing to take the government to court for that right, the right to hit their kids. Mm but said nothing on the refugee crisis in the CBD, said nothing when it comes to fees must fall, said nothing when it comes to the homeless shelter, said nothing when it comes to land for living, mm-hmm. said nothing when there was protests around like affordable health care or Sanita- sanitation. sanitation. Yeah. And so it's like there's, there's a selective way in which yeah. we want to engage the government. Mm-hmm. And so we will go to the state when it infringes on our ability to use power but we won't engage a state in relation to the widow, the orphan, yeah. you know? And I think that's, and I think that dual dichotomy is so dangerous for the church because it leaves us, I mean, if someone were to write a history of the church in 2019, it would say part of the church in 2019 was in court, taking the government, I mean, to the high commission. But I mean, I think there are other churches who were like, like an Alan Busak and those guys who were like standing in front of guns. And, and protecting refugees in the CBD. I think I always wonder what is the difference between the church that's in, that's in court with the government for hitting their kids and the church that's on the street fighting for sanitation. Mm. Like, what is the missing link? Because both those groups of people are reading scripture. Yeah. Both those group of people are zealous in their love for Jesus. Yeah. But how they outwork that love is so different. So different, yeah. And like, building like, like, what's, like what's, where is this disconnect? Yeah. Where people in the church will lead, will read Jesus on the streets, fighting for justice and and creating a political theology, and Abanya will see Jesus as a passive. He's here to save my soul and only my soul. And then then I'm out. And then I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, like I know that I grew up in the theology was very much like we are in this world but not of this world. I am a kingdom ambassador. And so that there's all this these languaging that we use mm. that make us abandoned who are not part of this world, who are merely visitors to the earth and not see ourselves as active participants in our yeah. in anthropology, in yeah. And a lot a lot of it I mean ish. We have spoken about this in other other episodes too. But a lot a lot of it a lot of this I think goes back to sure, go go back to Genesis and how one reads that. Because there's a certain way in which physicality is such a key component of who we are. Mm. And depending on how people deal with that, some of us have landed in the place of saying, well, this thing is just, this is just temporary. Yeah. What matters is my soul. Yeah. So the body and things of the body are inconsequential, mm. secondary at best. Yeah. But then it's like, well, but mm. if you see, like, again, how we're created and the fact that God chose to bring about this physical world and that we are living beings who are body and soul like together like that's what we are right. and that's why the resurrection is so important because right. the, the intrusion of death which separates the body from the spirit however that works or whatever mm. but the intrusion of death into that is reversed yeah by a, a bodily resurrection which means god cares about this bodily stuff mm-hmm. he cares about what happens to my body? I mean, there's so much in the... Again, it's also that thing of selective reading of scripture then how, like you're talking about widows and orphans, how much of that is in there? Right. The fact that we don't see it, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions that we need to ask ourselves as to why certain bits of scripture, we just don't seem to see them mm. altogether. We don't seem to action them. Mm. Why is that the case? Why? Yeah. And it's, I don't know. There, there, there's like levels and layers and like so many layers of theology that one can go into with mm. regards to that as to why some see and why some don't mm. but i think a part of it also i don't know maybe go maybe just goes into i guess maybe what we are as the church we are we've all of us got different blind spots maybe we need to all help each other to see I think but so. unfortunately i think we end up saying because you see this thing and i don't see it then 
<laughs> then I need to distance myself from you because you're a heretic. I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about the social gospel, right? People are not plucking the social application of the gospel out of thin air. They're reading the text and they're seeing a Christ who cares about the hungry, a Christ who cares about the lame, a Christ who cares about uplifting yeah. women who are being downtrodden. Like, they see that. And like, well, so then how can I not, if Christ is in me by his spirit, why would I then do life differently than the yeah. way he did life? Yeah. But when people see that, you know what I mean? So but it's mm. just like, we need to help each other with, within that. But I think sometimes there's, um, yeah, we, we, are, we don't want to walk and work together sometimes. Yeah. And that's, yeah, anyway. But I think that like, yeah. I think for me, the thing that I've, I mean, I've found myself in different Christian circles. And I think the one thing that I've always tried to hold dear is being humble in how I read the text. Oh. Being like, I'm reading, I'm very much reading the Bible as a black Kosa woman who's 26, who grew up here but lives here and whatever. And so all of those positionalities affect what I read and how I read it. Yeah. And so I think that's why the question of like diversity in community is so important because like if I'm reading the Bible in one way, I can be very ableist in that. Mm. And like if I'm reading how Jesus heals the lame and those who can't walk, if I read there was someone who's currently in a wheelchair, I'll read that. So I have to converse yeah. with it very differently. Yeah. Yeah. That calls them to a higher calling as they are using a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And so I think that like that's so important because then it, I think it brings us to a deeper understanding of what is happening when we are all reading it together. Yeah. And I wonder if it's usually homogenous groups. I think there's, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Mm. And if we don't take, I think, also if you don't take seriously the, like you're saying, the positionality, mm. I guess, where, where who you are mm. as you're coming to the text. Because, again, that, 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 that shapes us and that shapes how we read it. And, yeah. you, and again, the Holy Spirit corrects us and challenges us and pushes us to see beyond ourselves. Mm. But we do come to the text as particular people. Definitely. And so I think, yeah, potentially that, that might be it. That's, that there might be a part of it is yeah. that if you're in a situation where you're either very homogenous mm. in your in your outlook or you're homogenous in terms of like your, your class or your race mm. or your mm -hmm. gender or whatever. If you're homogenous in that way, then sometimes those questions don't ever pop up. Yeah. Or if you don't create spaces where diversity is allowed to intrude, yeah. then those questions don't sometimes pop up and then you, yeah. yeah. Anyway, are we varying from... I think we are so far. <laughs> so far from what we're intending on talking this about. This was supposed to be a but, About books. But anyway, but these, I guess these are the thoughts that these books yeah. are sparking in us. Yeah. But I think you had... Do you want to just do this one more and then we, um, we wrap up? Mm. What, what is this other book then? Yeah. So I don't know how to say her last name properly. Uh, Dangarembga. Oh, I love her. Titi Dangarembga. Yeah. yeah. So I haven't read the whole book, but I've... So this is the book called Nervous Conditions. And so one of the things that she's made me think about is how I write about the woman that I interview. Um, and particularly just, so part of what I've been fighting for is that I want to write my thesis, or at least the interview element of it in his class. And so, yeah, so this is what she says here, which I really like. She's like, there's a common critical view that the modern African novel is implicitly addressed to a Western reader. Here, according to the familiar response, is what we call a safari moment. A Zimbabwean constructed for the moral and literary tourist. Mm. The stories I have sketched seem too easily for us to enter into. Shouldn't the life of a Shona village girl be harder for us to make sense of? And doesn't its accessibility undermine its claim to speak authentically in a Zimbabwean voice? And I think part of what I like is that, like, for me, it's been so important to say that, like, the woman that I'm interviewing was speaking is closer. Mm. And it's cause astolico, which means that cause can't be interpreted. Sure. But because I'm writing within an English university, whatever, I have to write these stories in English. And I'm wanting to say that, like, I think the intricacies and the complicatedness of the Shona village girl mm. shouldn't be so easily accessible. Sure. Like, it shouldn't be a, a mystified moment where we can't access its richness and its whatever. But I also want to complicate the mm. domestic worker who lives in Kukuleto, who works in Camps Bay, sure. that her life is, is more richer than what English can afford. And I think, I mean, there's another part here that says, it's the Englishness, it will kill us if we aren't careful with it. Sure. And so I'm also just like, I think as I'm reading these books, um, and women who are deciding to write in English so that 
people can read and see what these lives are. But I think what it calls us to is to say, while I've given you these stories in English, it's more complicated than what that. that I'm offering you. Mm. And I think for me, part of why I love this course is that it's like Sinzulu, it's deep, it's like one word means different things. And, like, and I think as I read these stories, I'm entering into a different world. And what I've been enjoying about my fieldwork has been like speaking this closer to a mama and being like, sure, man, I'm, I'm entering a different realm with you. And it's not only, only the spoken word, it's in the size, it's, mm. it's the silence, it's the, it's the, it's all these things that are, that are speaking something so much deeper and complicating this life of a, of a township girl. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think I'm just really enjoying all of the books that I'm reading that are calling me into a deeper understanding of what womanness in Africa looks like and how, in fact, if I enter it in English, I lose something. Yeah. And that perhaps there's something about this cluster that has to stay the way that it is. And I think for me, the invitation to my non cluster speaking friends to say, Shaman, like, I wish you could come into my world the way that I so easily enter yours in English or Africans. And that you are, I mean, between the two of us, I'm like, I think I'm, at a, I'm poor but not understanding Shona Likewise, and entering into your world yeah. in the same that you are poor and not understanding this class and entering into parts of my identity and parts yeah. of my world. Yeah, so I think I've been really just enjoying that and thinking about what does this class mean in terms of knowledge production and what does this class mean in terms of um, story writing for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm just like, yeah, I think I'm reading lots of stuff that are just like re- really interesting. And are asking, I think, deeper questions about the type of academic that I want to be, but also being very honest about who I am continuously becoming and just being brave about calling the BS as BS, but also being very gentle about what I am and how I'm self-actualizing. It's a journey, yeah. ne? It's a constant like journey. It's not, it's not, it's not, I guess, the, the sometimes the picture of academia is that this thing is out there like it's objective and it's out there and it's yeah. you study it you work on it and then you yeah. produce materials but mm. it's actually a very like a emotionally and mentally involving mm. thing isn't it like if, yeah. you, if you really take it seriously it, do, it doesn't leave you untouched Mm-mm. this work so and i think that's why like yeah. there's there's like a growing literature in anthropology around what does it mean to do um research at home and home can be like your family or like home right. can be like your identity grouping and I think, yeah, like, I'm, I'm really receiving so much value from those kind of, like, authors, like, mm. Kanita Mohammed in the anthropology department, who are, like, really questioning things around what does it mean to be black and doing black research and black work. And I think, yeah, like, I'm just... I hope that out of this, well, I will <laughs> create something that is, yeah, readable and enjoyable, um, but also something that enriches my own journey. Anyway. Sure. Yes, friends. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there's a bunch more books that we are reading and that we could have mentioned. Um, that again, time <laughs> is a bit of the enemy. Yeah. I'm trying to keep this short. But yeah, no, thank you so much for, for listening and, yeah, and for man. tuning in and for just indulging us in this way. And like, again, we, 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 we love books and we're going to put some of the links in the description so mm-hmm. you can check that out and look out for these books for yourselves. But also let us know what are what are you reading? What are you engaging? What are you reading? Um, yeah. I think for a lot of people now, people are really getting into the whole thing of audio books now. Is you're driving to work and traffic mm-hmm. is bad, especially in Cape Town now. Traffic is really really bad, mm. um, and people are reading audio books uh, or listening to audio books. Let me put it that way, which has been which I think is great. So what are you reading? Or what's it inspiring in you? Or how is it challenging you in your own thinking? Let us know. And recommendations. The, yeah. For exactly. our yeah, specific study. Right, anything that might be helpful to us. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening, y'all. See Bye. you in the next episode. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
days I can see what's up Gotta close my eyes and just pray about it Most times when you hit me up I know you want something, I feel a way about it Married now, got the kid coming Got my mind spinning like a merry-go-go Ears open to them old heads When they come around, I speak very slow I gotta double down on this Maybe we gon' have to budget down on that It's been a long time, Sam Cook with a change coming, all facts. I can see the strange fruit, all black. Jango's candy, yell phrase. See the bullet carrying a noose. Billy now's blood on them leaves. Hold up, look, I cannot anticipate it. It's overrated. I am no longer a slave through the cross. I know mama, we made it. Congratulations. Through his image, we are made it. This spirit is giving me patience for all the races. Privilege performing hate in this ignorance. I rise above. I slide them love. Shine my light all in their face and I hope they cannot take it. Sophia Stewart, I escaped the matrix. Escape like 95, who can I run to? The arms of the one who loves you, 98 I am the latest, I am your favorite right now in the sun, therefore I am a raisin. I am a raisin, raisin in the sun, Sydney Portier with it, check out the cadence. Woo!